who put a lot of thought into uh you know your titles and 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 uh and and i guess your 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 chapter your chapter titles as well too what what's the what's the uh foundation in the history of fragments of bone why did you why did you choose that title what did it mean to you well um several things came to my mind when i was looking at titles and titles come to me uh really uh sometimes in my sleep actually to be uh, to be honest about it uh but fragments of bone i was especially uh struck by two images that i saw the first one is thinking about the bones of my ancestors, those who never made it to the other side of the Atlantic, those who left the West African and Central African coast and landed in uh, Central America, in the Caribbean, and South America mostly, and a very small proportion of these individuals would land eventually in the United States and Canada. And those who never made it, and there were millions of those, what happened to the bones at the bottom of the ocean? So, And I asked several of my scientific friends, I said, uh, what happens to those bones after centuries? And they said, well, it all depends. Salinity of the ocean, whether or not they were devoured by orcans, by sharks and whatnot, so a number of things. But I thought of these boats as gliding, gliding over those bones at the bottom of the Atlantic, North and South Atlantic. Also, I saw an image on television many, many decades ago of the Cardinal, the Archbishop of New York City. In his hand, he was holding some fragments of bones. And these were the bones of Pierre Toussaint, uh, who was born in Saint-Domingue, was an enslaved person owned by a French family, the fled, they, they fled Saint-Domingue uh, during the times of the Haitian Revolution, ended up in New York City, and um, according to the Roman Catholic Church, he was deserving of sainthood. And so his bones had been exhumed, and Cardinal, I think it was Spellman, it may have been somebody else, was showing those bones to young school children, and so fragments of bones. Uh, it, it bears to know that he was never made a saint in the Roman Catholic Church. And my understanding is that African Americans, most of whom are Protestants, of course, they are not Roman Catholic for, because their slave owners were not Roman Catholic, uh, objected to a man who seemed to have enjoyed slavery and never spoke against slavery. And so it was a wrong role model for young black males. Um, I think he was, he may have been beatified, I don't remember at this point, but he was never canonized as the first Haitian saint. Uh, so there were two sources for that particular title. And um, I, I like the, I like the idea. Plus, it, it, there's a ring to it. It sounds good. Mm -hmm. okay. uh, the introduction. What if history were written by the vanquished? Can you can you expand on that? 
Well, there is an African proverb, and I don't know the, the ethnic source, the, the national source of that particular proverb, since we're talking about more than 50 countries on the African continent. But it's, it goes something like this. If the lion wrote his history, uh, of words to the effect, I'm sure you've heard that before. Yes. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the, the hunter writes history because he's the hunter. He he's more powerful. He has the rifle. But if the lions wrote their own story, uh, the story would be different from what we have learned. And so that uh, I, I feel very grateful that I did all my small um, my my first grades. Uh, into high school in Haiti because I had access to uh, a way of looking at history which is unheard of in the United States. If I had gone to school in the United States as a small black boy, I would have had a distorted picture, a distorted image of what African history is all about, what the history of black people is all about, going to those white schools in the United States. So I was grateful that my education was done exclusively in Haitian schools. Uh, and so, indeed, those of us who are not the vectors in the global sense have a duty to present to ourselves, first of all, and to others as well, what the perspectives are and how different they are from the slave owner, how different mm -hmm. they are from the dominant culture, the dominant society that tells us what to do. So uh, talk, to, talk to us a little bit about that education in Haiti. What, what perspective did it give you that you found was so, so drastically different from what you would have had to, what training yeah. you would have had to, to assume? Well, being educated the, the very, in the state. Yeah, the very first education that I received, of course, was in the home. And I was um, lucky enough to have had individuals in the family context that were um, very savvy, that were highly educated, that knew um, Haitian history exceedingly well. And I'm talking in terms of what those of uh, those people who are now all ancestors, I'm talking about primarily to my grandfather, Dantes Belgard, uh, who is prominent in Haitian history. Haitian students learn about his works in uh, the the uh, in in literature classes in Haiti as well. And I was also lucky enough to have known his mother, um, Marie Noël Boisson. Uh, we call her nun. And she was born in 1858 and died in 1952. So I met her. I talked with her. She talked with me. And people tell me that I was her favorite great-grandchild. And mm -hmm. she still talks to me on occasion. So I'm very grateful that I knew someone who was born in the middle of the 19th century, 1858, uh, with whom I had connections. And the picture that comes to my mind is that when I held her hand, I was holding a hand that had held the hand of people who were born into the late 1700s, her parents and grandparents as well. And so that history becomes very much alive. History is not something that is necessarily past because it, it very much affects the present condition. In uh, and, the and, and field of psychology, you know, when you go to see a psychologist or a psychiatrist, they want to delve into your childhood. They want to know why you became the person you are. 
this is the same thing in terms of national history as well, the history of peoples, that you, you need a foundation. You know what happened first to know what direction that you will be going into, wittingly or unwittingly. And so mm-hmm. it becomes important to know who you are. And this is something that oftentimes we do not get in schools in the United States if we are people of color. We don't get that perspective. Mm-hmm. So, so is this something you realize later in life, looking back at your education and exposure in Haiti, that you appreciate? Or at the time, did you feel the sense of like, here's your Dante's uh, uh, You said was your was your uh, great grandfather? My grandfather, not my great. Your grandfather. I'm sorry. Yeah, your grandfather. Your grandfather. Yeah. I mean, to actually have someone who who is part of the history making of Haiti being your grandfather, not just somebody on the page, right, that you have to learn about in school. Were you aware of that then or just the enormity of, of, of the or the privilege yeah. of, of well, going up in a household where you're, you're connected yeah. to someone who's actually is part yeah. of making Haiti history? Had, well, talk about ac- that. Yeah, I had access to his library. His library held thousands of books, many of them, of course, first edition, many thousands of books written by Haitians themselves. And those were, I had direct access to those things, and I did read the books from his library. He had, for instance, three English encyclopedias. And oftentimes, I will have to send you a picture of me with some of those encyclopedias. Come to think of it, I think you will get a kick out of it. Uh, and I would pick up volumes at a time and go to my to my room and put it on my desk and read the entries, the various entries in those encyclopedias. Uh, <clears throat> but I also was fortunate that my five aunts were early feminists in Haitian history. Uh, and there was even an earlier person, Argentine Bergard, who was my grandfather's aunt. I never knew her because she died in 1901. Uh, but she was a tremendous influence on him and his wife, and on, uh, on, on subsequently uh, in Haitian history as well. And two of my aunts were co-founders of the first organization, feminist organization in, in Haitian history. So I had that as the background to my education. And so I learned the history of my own family. And before that, we had someone that I'm not exactly too proud of, Jean-Louis Bellegarde, who was one of the henchmen of Emperor Seleuc. Uh, he, um, he was governor of Port-au-Prince at one time. He was made Duke of saint louis du nord by um, <clears throat> Faustin Seleuc during the empire and uh, was apparently uh, one of the henchmen of, of Seleuc, together with a man called Charles Oscar. And you may recognize that name in terms of carnival uh, in Haiti with La Mayotte and that kind of thing. And it's called Chaloska, right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Chaloska, uh, in terms of the deguisement, in terms of the costume that he wears, is a very scary man. And so there were two henchmen that Suluk had to rely upon, um, his faithful servant, that was Jean-Louis Bergarde and Charles Oscar, Charles Oscar. And I'm, I'm grateful that my ancestor did not become the carnival figure that Charles Carl became. 
and and uh, your the intro you you quote Edward Blyden and it says uh, you may change the theology of a people but you cannot change you cannot change their religion. Uh, wh- what does that mean to you? Well, actually, I might have phrased it, um, uh, I would have reversed those terms. Um, uh, Blyden, who was born in the Eastern Caribbean, um, became prominent in terms of African-American philosophy. But many of these individuals were born in the Caribbean and ended up at some point in the United States. I, would, I might have said, you can change the religion of a people, but you cannot change their theology. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm not too sure which one is the better formulation, uh, but I think it works either way with some slight, uh, impl- with different implications. When I first came to the U.S. in 1966, I remember going to an African-American church. And I felt very comfortable in that milieu in terms of the way the service was conducted, in terms of the singing, in terms of the joy that I saw expressed in that church. And I saw a woman uh, take the, uh, uh, get the Holy Spirit, and it felt like being in a voodoo ceremony, quite frankly. And I said to the person that I was with, and I said, what's going on? And he says, oh, she caught this, the Holy Spirit. And I said, which one? I know 417 ones. And you see, and we have a drum beat for each one of those individuals. Which one is it? And of course, he was dumbfounded. And then they took her to the back of the church and brought her back. And I said, let her go. I want to see what happens next. Because in Haitian voodoo, there's a lot of stuff that happens next. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I read the poem by, um, um, what's his name, um, John Weldon Johnson, The Creation. And I was transported. It felt very much like a voodoo poem that I would have written if I had been so talented. talented. Uh, and um, so, so what happens is that we, when we are taught new religions, when we are forced to adopt new religions, which is exactly what happened to the enslaved, they were forced to accept new religions, religious ideas, because their own was perceived to be dangerous to the established order, uh, we still carry forth some of those traditions and they become lost in, in, in time, but we still carry forth some of the traditions that our ancestors used to do the practices even though we don't recognize the source at that point. Uh, mm-hmm. I have found in places like Dakar, Senegal, Muslims who go back to the, to, to the, uh, um, at, at night, go to see that, that sort of worship and the old structures. I can see, I see sometimes Haitians who are very good Catholics or very good Protestants in the dead of night go to the Hunga or to the Mabo for advice. In other words, we are who we are, and we might think that we're modernizing by adopting other people's cultures and other people's traditions, but somehow at, at, at the bottom of it, in the nana, as it were, um, nana is a good Haitian expression, uh, in the nana, we are who we are, and we want to hold on to those things even as we do not realize where they come from. Mm-hmm. 
so uh, I, I said to you earlier that I, I, I found I found a fragment of bone, you know, del- your your intro deliciously dense <laughs> in the most positive, wonderful way. And just so the audience know, I, I haven't even tackled the first paragraph yet. <laughs> uh, and you know, ten fifteen minutes into into this uh, this conversation, so let's let's talk about uh, something you I found very interesting. Uh, on the first paragraph, you talk about uh, a mambo, uh, a, a priestess who who, uh, who told you, uh, who, who I guess reprimanded you about uh, asking too many questions, and and you 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 describe this 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 sort of tension between uh, uh, quiet reflection and 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 observation and how uh, the requirements of of, of a Western based uh, type of uh, education or social science, uh, uh, you know, trying to reconcile, uh, you know, the differences between, you know, those two, your, your personal religious uh, subjective realities versus the, you know, the uh, the Western-based social science requirements uh, uh, to, to reflect between quiet and noise. Can you talk a little bit about uh, that, that sort of tension and how you ended up reconciling it for this book? Yeah, some cultures tend to be a little bit more introverted, and other mm-hmm. cultures are extroverts in that sense, if I can make that illusion. Uh, 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 it's not exactly correct because you cannot translate the individual to the society at large because it doesn't work in the mm-hmm. social sciences. But I, I'm a social scientist at heart. And um, I learned certainly in terms of my education, especially at the college level, that I should remove myself from uh, these kinds of things and try to look at the world objectively. Well, it, it does not happen as, as, as quietly as this, as quickly as this, or if it happens at all. One always carries forth um, um, in the back of our minds um, what it is that we, we come from. And But I... Um, I I tend to ask too many questions because I was trained to do so in the social sciences. And sometimes just keeping quiet, not saying a word, might serve me better because I might be able to observe better. Um, as simple as that. Um, I remember, for instance, that when I um, uh, published Haiti the Breached Citadel, uh, some of the uh, critique of, published critique of the book uh, was, uh, were very telling. Um, one critic said that you cannot trust him because he seems to like his country. Therefore, don't trust the writing. That's interesting because this is never raised in the context of American scholars writing about the United States. And then mm-hmm. when I started publishing on Haitian Vaudoux, they said don't trust his writing because he practices uh, that religion. Well, you know, Jews write about Judaism. Christians write about Christianity, Muslims write about Islam, and that is never raised in the context of the writing, that uh, you cannot trust them. But somehow, with people of color, it becomes somehow the, 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 the question to ask, can you trust that person? Is he or is she legitimate? Um, you, you, can really, you cannot really talk about what it is that you preach or what it is that you teach uh, because this is not exactly, you're not being exactly objective. 
And mm-hmm. I have rejected that, that point of view a long, long time ago because it just doesn't work uh, for me or for others, for that matter. We pretend to be objective, and, mm-hmm. uh, uh, but this is not the case. But, um, and indeed, I was told to be quiet and to observe and to look with new eyes what was going on in front of me. And eventually, mm-hmm. and this is the role of ritual, by the way. Ritual is the repetition of actions over very long periods of time. And at some point, uh, it explodes in front of your face that, oh, that's what it means. I, I was saying these things by rote. I didn't quite understand what they mean. Prayer works in the same way. And eventually, it starts making sense after you have reflected upon it and done it enough times. Mm. Uh, I remember an interview with Toni Morrison where she complained about that, too, because she would get asked, like, how come you don't have white characters in your novels? (laughs) (laughs) And she's like, you know, did did you ask Dame Joyce the same question? (laughs) You know? Uh, Oh, yeah. Right? You know, and so on. So, yeah. (laughs) Well, yeah. And by the way, Neil Hurston has several statements, and I think, I have them somewhere in Fragments of Bone. Maybe it is in that introduction. I don't know. Where she says, you know, that uh, you may change people's religion. And she sort of uh, uh, says what Edward Blyden has said, that in her wonderful style, that somehow, you know, we worship uh, old gods in new bottles. We worship old gods in new forms, in new formats. And mm-hmm. so, you know, and, and certainly in terms of what happened in the U.S. in the 1960s and 1970s now, it is okay for African Americans to talk about ancestors and ancestry, something that we did not talk about. It does not come out of Christianity. It comes of African systems, religious systems. Mm-hmm. But we, we have amalgamated some of those ideas that came from ancient sources into the way in which many African Americans worship the new God that they have accepted from Europe. Um, and so, um, so be it. Um, we are an amalgamation of all kinds of folks. We're an amalgamation, and mm-hmm. in, in Haiti itself, Haitian voodoo is unique in terms of the Americas, for instance, because it brings together uh, West and Central Africa, African sources. Mm-hmm. This is mm-hmm. not necessarily true of Cuba. This is not necessarily true of Brazil, where these things have remained, uh, have remained discreet and apart. But Haiti mm-hmm. brings it all together in a creolized form because we mm-hmm. use a creole language as a liturgical language. And because we, have cut, we were the first ones to cut our connection with Africa, yet we have remained the most African country in the Western Hemisphere, even though the contact with Africa was cut at the earliest possible time. Because mm-hmm. we remember that Cuba and Brazil and other places were receiving, as it is said here in the U.S., fresh uh, saltwater Africans. Slavery was continuing. It was abolished mm-hmm. at the earliest possible time in Haiti, being the first country that ever abolished slavery, uh, modern slavery. And mm-hmm. so, uh, but it's a creolized version of bringing together a number of West African and Central African forms into the religion. So, so was it the uh, the the eighteen o four independence that that functioned as sort of a 
of a, of, of a knife cutting the colonial umbilical cord and the subsequent isolation of Haiti that's kind of helped us preserve as much of our African roots, at least as it existed back then, as possible. Was that a part of that, too? Oh, oh yeah. That- it is part of that. And Haiti was ostracized and mm-hmm. uh, ignored by the rest of the world, pretty much. Mm-hmm. And remember that Africa was, uh, that Haiti was the first country of African origin, uh, modern country of African origin. Uh, Ethiopia was never colonized, so there was, and then, and then third, uh, you have Liberia that comes in a bit later. Uh, mm-hmm. But um, until 1860, there was no formal connection with the Roman Catholic Church. The Concordat was signed in 1860 by the Haitian government and the Vatican. And so at that point, priests start coming back to, to um, uh, convert the natives as it were, to mm-hmm. convert the savages, essentially. Um, mm-hmm. but that's the way the West has always looked at us. Well, pretty mm-hmm. much savages. Um, and uh, in 1862, of course, is when the U.S. finally recognizes Haiti um, uh, with all kinds of asterisks um, behind that. Uh, and so Haiti was left to its own devices, pretty much, uh, from, 1880, from 1804 until the 1860s. And then mm-hmm. it rejoins uh, the rest of the world little by little. And by the 1880s, uh, 1890s, it has completely rejoined the uh, orthodoxy of, of the modern world, as it were, um, instead of the contemporary, which is now. And, um, and, and this was the very beginning of neocolonialism. And that's kind mm-hmm. of interesting to me because we became neocolonial before the term was invented. Before the term, <laughs> Haiti was the first country to become neocolonial. Uh, in other words, this, uh, with the thumb under the thumb of the world powers at that time, you're talking about Germany, you're talking about France, you're talking about the United Kingdom, and you're talking about the United States, of course. Uh, and, and then, uh, you know, um, and the rest is history, uh, literally and yeah. figuratively. So, so neo under the thumb of neocolonialism, and then under the thumb of neoliberalism. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. Now it's neoliberalism, <laughs> and it's right. kind of interesting because I'm not too sure that the word the the the, the neo um, makes any difference at all. It's still liberalism and still colonialism. We call it neo, I guess, to distinguish it from some of the earlier forms. It's like, for instance, when I heard neo-fascism, I said, what's neo about it? Fascism is fascism. What's so neo about it? Uh, Yeah, it's to distinguish the historical periods and not more. Yeah, yeah, yes, indeed. And Haiti developed amazingly well, by the way. Right after 1804, we had a foundry where we were making some of our own weapons and armaments. Uh, Haiti was developing ever so slowly by itself, and that's before the French, of course, imposed to the Haitian government that crippling debt. Uh, because we had to pay our former slave owners for having freed ourselves. Uh, up to that point, Haiti was doing okay. And it is said that the Haitian peasantry had the highest standard of living in Latin America. 
and second only to the United States in terms of the Americas. And so that is kind of interesting to me because there was very little commerce going on between Haiti and the rest of the world, very little of it, in fact. And so uh, what was happening in the countryside when people took to the hills and had their little piece of land is that we were feeding ourselves something that we're not doing now. We were feeding ourselves. Haiti was able to feed itself. And um, we were doing kind of okay until the folks came back in neocolonialism. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, you write that uh, all roads ultimately lead to Il Ife, the Yoruban sacred city. Can you explain that to us? Well, yeah. Um, Haiti is a product of the modern world. Uh, very much so. It is also the product of realization um, in, in terms of its culture itself, in terms of the language, which we call Creole, which is a product of realization as well. The religion is a form, uh, is, is a product of realization. Uh, and there is that saying in the Western world that all roads lead to Rome, something that Henry VIII may object to, or Martin Luther may object to. <laughs> but we have that expression nonetheless, and we use it, and everybody knows what it means. And in terms of this, the, the Yoruba tradition is a very powerful one, uh, largely because quite a few people of Yoruban descent ended up in slavery, enslaved in the Western Hemisphere. And uh, so they, they were very well established. There were other groups of people as well out of uh, old Dahomey and elsewhere, uh, the Akan in Jamaica, for instance. Um, and But somehow, Yoruba shines. And so we have inherited, via Dahomey, uh, the, the, those, some of those traditions and some of those ideas. Um, and so the second city in, in Nigeria would be indeed that. And I'm trying to decentralize the European uh, worldview that, uh, that it is what it is, uh, and, and trying to, to center myself and to center the Haitian people and people of African descent in a different way and looking at ourselves in much different way. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, I, I never call myself an Afrocentrist. I never would. But Africa is still the center of my world. And when I landed in Africa for the very first time, I have been there twice. When I landed in Africa, I felt completely, completely at home. It's as if I had returned. I, I, I felt this intensely. Uh, and I recognize some of the things that we do. Uh, we we pay in the same fashion. Haitians are very good at tripe, right? You mm -hmm. know what that is. The tripe, yeah. Tripe, yeah. And, well, uh, other people do it as well. Even white Cubans tripe also, but they have learned it from the Africans, the Afro-Cubans. And in Brazil, I found that as well. And you find it in, uh, in a different form in the United States among African-Americans. But I, 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 I reckon when I came back from Benin, people, I was tripe constantly, and people said, what's going on with you? I said, well, I've been to Africa. And it sort of became second nature. Uh, <laughs> and I said, well, what does it mean, actually? And, and I said, well, it's like a 14-year-old white girl saying whatever. <laughs> yeah. So, so that's, that, what that, they, that's what came to people, mind. For people who don't know, Chipe is that yeah. sad, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it can mean yeah. all kinds of things. 
But yes. we do it very well. We do it with gusto. And Asians are really masters of cheaping. Yeah. <laughs> so it, I always call it cheaping. It's not cheaping, is it? Well, I, it depends on how you pronounce it, I guess. And yeah. the regions are coming I've from. I've heard cheaping. I've heard cheaping. Yeah, 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 uh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, so I don't know how it would be written in Haitian Creole. Yeah, uh, yeah. Whatever, T W I whatever, but uh, it's very effective, and it's it is it it, it can be derisive. It can be yeah. you know, as I said, somebody saying oh whatever. Yeah, <laughs> but it's, uh, it's effective. It's effective. In the case of my wife, sometimes it's a warning. <laughs> Oh, yeah. <laughs> in the very same way, when a black yeah. woman puts her arm akimbo, yeah. leave, because yeah. something is about to happen. Yeah. When when yeah. they put, you know, their arms akimbo, right? On both yeah. sides yeah, of sorry. the yeah. yeah. So you better leave the premises, because something yeah. is about to come down. <laughs> and, and, and my wife is from Cameroon, and so oh. she has that. I'm, I'm like, wow, okay. <laughs> Uh-huh. The French yeah. region or the English region of Cameroon? The, 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 the French. Oh, okay. French <laughs> yeah. 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 I've not so, been to Cameroon uh, yet. That would be part of my bucket list. Because yeah, I, I was I, I was there uh, pre-COVID pre, uh, with the family. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. And uh, I'm interested in every one of those countries in Africa, every one of those. Yeah. And I'm sure I would learn a great deal as if I were to visit every place. Yeah, um, amazing, amazing place. I cannot, yeah. I, cannot, I cannot go to those places and not be noticed, unfortunately, because of my color. And yeah. so, but I was, I was pleased that in Benin, people started referring to me as an albino African. I was pleased by that because that yeah. means I was starting to make inroads in yeah. something that was essential. <laughs> but otherwise, I hear you. yeah, I cannot... In Haiti as well. It's very difficult mm-hmm. for me too, unless I speak and I dance. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I hear you. Uh, there's a there's a, an interesting quote that thought maybe you you could uh, you know expound on them a little bit. From from Hurston, uh, gods always behave like people who make them. And then you also quoted Karen McCarthy Brown, who said that on the most basic level, cultures are shaped by their root metaphors. What are what are what, what's Haitian culture's root metaphors? Yeah. Can you give us a few examples of that? Well, that's a, that's know, a, yeah. yeah, let me respond to both of these things. Religions are invented by human beings. Religions are not invented by uh, God, if she exists. It is not uh, God, you know, that's, that's not the object, the objective of a supreme deity to invent a religion and impose it on others. People come up with it. And my sense is that if you look at various people around the planet, um, the, their religion and their gods themselves very much resemble them in terms of their behavior, which is quite human, and that kind of thing. If you look at the gods of ancient Greece, the gods of ancient Rome, that kind of thing. You can elaborate from that uh, certain features and facets of these societies and those civilizations. Uh, in Japan, the, those gods look like the Japanese. In China, they look like Chinese. Um, and as you move from country to country, you know, if you go to Sweden, Jesus looks, well, well he is blonde and blue-eyed and transparent 
as they themselves are. And it's kind of stunning that the Africans have adopted that kind of Jesus to represent them, which looks nothing like any African I've ever met. Uh, hmm. And so, and indeed, the behavior of the gods tells you something about the behavior of the human beings that have created that god. Uh, now, and, and, and so this is significant. Now, in terms of the second thing that you said, what was that again? Uh, the the second thing was uh, uh, that cultures, yeah, yeah. cultures are shaped by their root metaphors. Yes, uh-huh. exactly. Well, yeah, <clears throat> and this is interesting because you know there are many dozens of religions now practiced in Haiti. Many dozens. The Mormon Church has um, fairly recently established uh, a church, a, a temple in outside in Port Prince somewhere. I've never seen it because I've not been to Haiti lately. Uh, and so, but the, the, the foundation remains the same because the Haitians may become Mormon, Muslims, Rastafarians, uh, uh, evangelists, Roman Catholic, and whatnot. But but the 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 <coughs> The central, the, the central condition of the country still remains the Creole language, which is adopted by those other religions, by the way, <clears throat> and, 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 and the Vodou religion, even if they don't know anything about it, even if they don't practice it. I remember in graduate school, I met this wonderful uh, person. She was from Mexico City, and she was Jewish. And she said to me, uh, and we were working on our PhDs together at the American University, and she says, you know, there are so few Jews in in, in um, uh, Mexico that you cannot help but absorb, absorb some of that culture. And so there is a lot of Roman Catholic imagery and a lot of Roman Catholic sentiments and things that occur in uh, a new, even if you are Jewish, because you cannot, you know, you cannot help but be assimilated to a certain extent in that particular culture. And so this is true, of course, of ethnic minorities everywhere that you go. Uh, they, are, they have the kowtow oftentimes to the dominant culture in that particular society. And so this is taken for granted. But, but the roots remain the same whether they are recognized or not. I have met Haitians who don't speak French, argue with foreigners that they only know French. And of course they know Creole and not French. I have met with a Haitian priests who will not admit publicly, especially in front of white folks, that they are Vodouhunga uh, or Mambo. Uh, it's as if they are ashamed to talk about it. A shame of their language, a shame of their religion, a shame of their color, a shame of their, of their hair. And, and we know where that comes from, and that was established during the colonial period uh, all over the world. Um, so, and this mm-hmm. is a real issue that we have to deal with. Colorism in Haiti, which is a, has been a factor for hundreds of years, comes, of course, from the colonial ethos. And we need to move, obviously, beyond that, and we've not done a very good job of it. In mm-hmm. the country, and this is true of Jamaica. This is true of Barbados. This is true of of Guyana and other places. This is certainly true of Brazil, where people might be ashamed to admit their roots or to say that I have African ancestry. I remember being in the Dominican Republic, where uh, a former president of the Dominican Republic admitted at the end of his term that he had African ancestry. 
And people gasped. Dominicans in the audience gasped because you're not supposed to say that. You cannot admit to having African roots if you're Dominican. But he said so, but he was not running for office again, so it was okay. And he was a lot darker than I was. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Uh, again, there's so many beautiful passages here. Uh, uh, I want to get your thoughts on, on this one. Uh, African religion, and quote, African religions are initiatory rather than dogmatic, metaphysical rather than moralistic, and living rather than preserved. That's, that's beautiful stuff, Patrick. Yeah. Well, yeah. it's this not just Haitian uh, voodoo, but it is, of course, indigenous systems around the world. Uh, the so-called nature religion, where things change as nature itself changes. And so that it's not written and written forever. Alwa may appear at the ceremony and said, well, that song that you were singing for me, I don't like it anymore. I'm going to teach you a new song. And we all learn that new song. If that's Dilwa wants it, if Dilwa wants it. Also, there is a sense of that um, it's more those many of these you know the ritual aside. There is more, uh, uh, there is more of a spiritual sense than religious sense in many of those systems, uh, and it is metaphysical in that sense. You are talking in terms of mysticism being a fleur de peau. It is easily accessed by individuals themselves into the mysticism. Now, the uh, world's most famous religions, of course, do have mysticism as well, but you have to dig and dig deep to get at it, because certainly mm-hmm. the priesthood around those religions are not comfortable having giving access to mysticism to the common mortal. Uh, <clears throat> I remember when I was in Israel for several weeks, um, I've always been interested in Kabbalah, which is one of the uh, mystical aspects of Judaism. And even rabbis would say they don't know anything about it. They were ashamed to admit that it exists in Judaism. But Kabbalah is the mystical, one of the mystical traditions of Judaism. You have Sufi in terms of Islam. And, and uh, Christianity has also its mystics, but it is it is... Uh, the, the, the episcopate and certainly the priesthood tend not to want to talk about that or emphasize it because they lose control at that point, which is kind of interesting. Um, mm-hmm. When I was in um, school um, in Haiti, um, in the parochial school um, and the congregation school, uh, it was a tradition at that point, certainly the Roman Catholic Church, not to let us read the Bible. Uh, we read the catechism, and we had to memorize the catechism. And you see, the Bible was not, it was too elaborate, too, you know, the priest will tell you what's in the Bible, but we don't want you to read it, because you might get different ideas, you see, but we're going to tell you what you think, or how to think. And that's a problem. Now, in, in Haitian voodoo, certainly, we have direct access as individuals to the spiritual dimension, to the metaphysics of that religion. So you do not have to pass to a priest to know what it all means. You figure it out yourself. You have the mm-hmm. direct connection with the divine, direct connection, literally direct connection with the divine. So you don't have to experience it to what a priest is telling you. Mm-hmm. 
let's talk, let's dig a little deeper into this direct connection uh, with these religion, which you compared to, uh, to jazz uh, in the sense that, that uh, the conversation is, is, is negotiated and there's a lot of improvisation uh, between between the believers and the the, the spirits, right? Uh, and, and here's another beautiful uh, line. You said, we are free inside a bound framework. Music and religion have proven inseparable syncopation represents the burps, belches, and gutsy growls of life lived at its fullest the delineation of our physical selves. That's, that's that beautiful stuff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. I'm impressed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, jazz is extraordinary. And to me, jazz is very, very spiritual. And by yeah. the way, there's a lot of Haitian-ness in jazz. Remember that after the Haitian Revolution, uh, thousands upon thousands of enslaved Africans who were born in Saint-Domingue or were born in what became Haiti, or for that matter, in West and Central Africa, uh, came to New Orleans with their masters. In mm -hmm. the city, the population of New Orleans doubled in just a few weeks and a few months with that Haitian connection. And uh, Jelly Will Morton, who is sometimes called the father of jazz, had Haitian roots and Haitian connections. I think in terms of his godfather mostly and the last name, uh, Morton is actually Mouton, apparently. But anyway, so Haiti has something to do with the actual construction of jazz, which is an African-American American, that's the form of American classical music, and, mm -hmm. and highly elaborate, and, but it's, it's intuitive, it's mystical, uh, it, 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 the way it plays itself out, you know, in terms of the, what you described when you read that particular sentence, um, uh, and where diverse instruments play with each other, which is kind of an mm -hmm. interesting concept. It's not written down. It kind of becomes written down with the, in the swing era in terms of the big bands uh, in, in, in the United States in the 1930s and 1940s. But it is intuitive, it is spiritual, it is wonderful. And music is a universal language in the way that mathematics is a universal language, if not a cosmic language. Mathematics and music have connections with each other, even though the composers do not realize how good mathematicians they are. They may know nothing about mathematics, but if you look at European classical music, if you look at jazz, which is the American form of classical music, it is highly mathematical. And so those are the two languages that people understand the world over. All cultures understand that. And so Haiti has to take a bow because it has produced, uh, certainly has impacted other countries in terms of its musical forms. And I had a friend in Cuba who has since died who was writing a book talking about the influence of Haitian music on the development of forms of Cuban music and many Cubans were not happy that he was going to reveal to the world that much of Cuban music had Haitian roots because thousands of enslaved Haitians also were dragged into Cuba after the right 
during the time of the Haitian Revolution with the enslaved French masters and settled in the Santiago de Cuba region of Cuba. And you have the Haitian influence more than 200 years later. You see it in the streets. I have heard Haitian uh, Creole spoken in the hills of Cuba from people who had escaped Haiti more than 200 years ago. The, the wow. Creole language survives in Cuba. As it is, wow. it's the second most popular language in Cuba. is Haitian Creole. Wow, that's uh, that's incredible stuff. See, you did for somebody who isn't feeling too well. This was pretty incredible stuff. Well, <laughs> well, and, and then of course, after we have ended this particular session, I will remember all the things I should have said and how I should have said it in a more poetic fashion. Uh, but I, I cannot think quickly enough on my feet, I guess. Especially no, that's, 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 that's fine. And again, you can pause and take time to think about something because I'll cut all that pause out unless it makes some kind of, you know, uh, flow. It, it flows. Sometimes yeah. I leave a little silence just to kind of uh, emulate the normal conversation, you know. But yeah. not too long. So that should make you feel much easier. But I think mm -hmm. this was like really good. So um, yeah. and we barely we haven't even gotten through the, the intro, half of the intro yet. Yeah. <laughs> and by the and by the way, I'm reminded of uh, of another uh, proverb, African proverb, what is the soap that proverb I don't know. Uh, uh, which ethnic group about uh, a river who does not know its root, its source soon dries up mm -hmm. um, and and so and this is this is a concept that we need to remember also in terms of our own very our very own future because there is no future without the past yes. the past established what roads become possible what other mm -hmm. roads have become possible based on what you are and where you were mm -hmm. and this mm -hmm. is very important uh, one of the things that I absolutely like uh, the persona of Haitian problems that we have in the country. We have tons of them, and they are all very juicy, they are all very judicious, they are all very powerful, and really, and, and, but, and then you have to read between the lines when you talk about these proverbs, for instance. There is one that I like very much that I apply to myself. A Haitian proverb in terms of people saying, oh, you're not Haitian enough, you don't look Haitian, etc., etc., and my response is a Haitian proverb, <laughs> In other words, you cannot shake it. Mm -hmm. You cannot yes. shake it. Yeah. <laughs> and the next time you see a dog in the streets, wet yeah. its hind legs. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. The hind yeah. legs. That, that is the proof that it's a real dog. <laughs> now, when I, make, when I make speeches, when I lecture around the country, and I mention that proverb, I do not translate it into English. I say, look at your Haitian neighbor next to you, and he or she will translate it for you, but I'm not going to go there. <laughs> yeah, right, right. <laughs> yeah. You know what? You want us to lose the power of, of, of the proverb by translating it. Yeah. That, that, that's you. the wisdom of the people. Yes. yes. And when I go into the Haitian countryside, which I have done, I sit, sit on the ground, and I listen to the old folks talk to me, and I try not to interrupt. I just mm -hmm. sit on the ground mm -hmm. with a cup of Haitian coffee, mm 
And you know, we put a little coffee in our sugar. Mm-hmm. And I just listened to the old folks talk to me. That's all. And I learned a great deal that way. And I will not interrupt or try mm-hmm. not to interrupt. Right. And that's what uh, I do. You know that that passage about uh, about uh, you know uh, living living a, a, a religious experience or practice versus the more formalized preservation aspect of it and, and, yeah. and, and Western culture. I, I, it, until I read that passage, I think this is the best argument I've heard for, 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 for the power of the oral tradition yeah. and how it, you know, each generation, you pass on down whatever you need to pass it down, but it doesn't necessarily have to be preserved or frozen in time, right? It's, yeah, exactly. It's, it's uh, not in a book. It can change. It's not, yeah. It's not in a book. Uh, yeah. And you said something about religion initiatique, you know, the, the power of initiation. Uh, most nature religions around the world, whether it's African, African or American Indian, uh, Amerindian, uh, as we say in the Caribbean and elsewhere, you have to go through various processes of initiation in order to learn, quote unquote, the secrets. Well, those are not necessarily secrets. They are revealed to you, but you come, you come into your own and you sort of realize them for yourself. But it all, it, it comes from, you know, nature has its secrets and nature is very powerful that way. And we're all connected through DNA. Through nature. Uh, now the latest thing is that we are putting a pig's heart into a human being who needs a new heart. Yeah. Uh, because we do have those connect- those are mammals to start with, and we're connected to every single thing in nature. Uh, even our DNA has some of bananas or broccoli in us. So we we understand that uh, how unified all all of all of nature is, but. I'm also thinking that part of that quote-unquote secretive nature of initiations that people see it, and this is where it becomes problematic because the think of witchcraft at that point is, look, under slavery condition, you had to hide to do anything at all. We were mm-hmm. forbidden to practice our religions. We were forbidden to play the drums in many places, which is why still band music became a thing in Trinidad because they were forbidden by the English slave owners to play the drums. You were forbidden to dance in the United States if you were an enslaved person, uh, and, and that kind of thing, because it was seen by the slave owners, I guess, and by the society as something that would unify people of African descent and potentially dangerous to the whites. Potentially dangerous because part of it was mystical and perceived to be a little bit too spiritual, but of course it was defined as demonic, as satanic. Mm-hmm. Now, African religions do not have Satan. It just doesn't exist. Uh, we don't deal with sins. We deal with taboos, and my taboos may not be yours. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, obviously there are certain things that we ought not to do because there is a solid code of ethics in all religious systems, all of them, mm-hmm. and they're pretty much the same. 
but she mm-hmm. does not have to externalize a Satan, or create or invent a Satan, in order to juxtapose it, to, to, to oppose it to God, who is uh, obviously all good, right? Uh, mm-hmm. And it's, it's two sides of the same coin. So yeah. each individual has good sides and bad sides, and God itself, neither male nor female, has good sides and bad sides as well. So you don't have to invent a creature in order to justify your ill behavior, your mm-hmm. bad behavior. Right, right. The, the whole scapegoat phenomenon, right? Yeah, yeah. But you should yeah. remember that Satan was created by God, right? According to yep. that tradition. And mm-hmm. so God can get rid of its creation if it wants to. And mm-hmm. chooses not to, I guess, in that tradition. Uh, so th- th- there's no Satan. Uh, and yeah. Satan is inside you as God is inside you. <laughs> yeah, right, right. <laughs> and I told, yeah. I was telling my students, it depends on which side of the bed I woke up this morning. If yeah. I'm, I'm by evil or good. And mm-hmm. I'm evil before I get my first cup of coffee. I'm totally evil. Yeah. I, I you know, <laughs> after my first cup of coffee, I mellow out and I'm a much better person. Mm-hmm. But don't talk mm-hmm. to me before the first cup of coffee. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, this this was great. This is good stuff, Patrick. This is going to be uh, part part two of the of the religion, and and we're barely covered. We're barely covered the book. So uh, I want to stick to your to your 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 intro. I think you wrote. Let's see. I think this format will work. Like I read you certain passages, and then uh, hopefully it triggers something. You know. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, you wrote the the uh, the other one. After we leave the intro, we'll tackle chapter three, which is the spirit of the thing, religious thought, and social historical memory. Uh-huh. That's the one we'll tackle next. Uh, I, I I don't know if you want to talk about some of the uh, other contributors' uh, uh, pieces or the ones you like. Well, you um, if you want to, we can, but I'm not an expert in those other traditions. Yeah. And yeah. which is why I ask these people to join me and put this book to get together. Right. Because I'm not <laughs> right. an expert on Cuban, um, uh, right, right. Ocha, uh, and, um, uh, Candomblé and Umbanda in Brazil and that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, so. But, you know, okay. I can talk generally about these things, but not in specific right. terms. Yeah, so we'll yeah. so we'll stick. The next one we'll cover is chapter three. Then okay, after sure. we finish with the yeah. intro. And by the way, it's uh, I remember there was an old professor uh, who was Native American here on my campus. He since died. He was in the seventies, and I read him some of these things, and he started crying in my office. He said, "That's exactly what Native Americans believe." I said, "I know. That's why I'm telling you." Mm-hmm. I lectured at Marquette University in Milwaukee, and a student from India came up to me. He said, oh, that's exactly what I believe in Hinduism. I said, yeah, I know. And I have had mm-hmm. people from Japan tell me, oh, Voodoo seems very much like, like Shinto. I said, yeah, of course it is. Those are mm-hmm. so-called nature religions rooted in basic natural sciences, and so that we would not have a problem with Copernicus of Galileo Galilei, we would not, who almost, you know, who, who were almost executed by the Roman Catholic Church for spreading disinformation that the, that the earth did not go around the sun, the sun went around the earth, and the center of the universe was the city of Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
and they were mm-hmm, almost mm-hmm. killed for saying these things, or the problems with evolution. The respect that indigenous cultures has for animal, the animal kingdom, of which mm-hmm. we are a part, but nobody wants mm-hmm. to believe that uh, sometimes. Uh, and the respect that those indigenous traditions reserve to the animal kingdom, even as they hunt them, mm-hmm. is remarkable. Hmm. And now we are finding out because there, are, there, there is serious research going about the world about the intelligence of plants, the intelligence mm-hmm. of plants, the mm-hmm. way that they deal with each other in a forest and that kind of thing. As a boy in Haiti, whenever I had to walk over uh, grass, I would apologize to it. And when I came to the U.S. and I mentioned that to some of my white friends, I said, you are crazy. I said, grass is live. <laughs> right. <laughs> and I would trample over it, and I said, oh, excuse me, but I've got to go from point A to point B, so I'm going to walk over you. And, but I was a child when mm-hmm. I taught these things. Uh, and, and traditional religion systems are very, very much aware of the world around them and highly respected. And Native Americans talk about the languages of the various nations, the Crow Nation, the Eagle Nation, the Bison Nation. Those are nations of their own languages and their own savoir-faire, and they need to be respected. And without them, we cannot survive. Without the bees, we Mm -hmm. cannot survive. If the bees disappear, we're in trouble. And the bees show intelligence, and now what is being revealed at some point, because some scholars are working on this, the common bee recognizes individual human faces. Mm-hmm. That's probably why they want to sting me, I guess, <laughs> because they don't like my face. <laughs> <laughs> so, the common so, bee recognizes human faces. Right, right. <laughs> so, so, and so how can... You know, Mm-hmm. So, excuse me. So, how can how can these uh, structured uh, uh, religions with systems and 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 morals and 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 the goal being the preservation of of of, of, of the power structure within that religion, how can those religions legitimately claim the universality of their cosmology? when it is well, so mm-hmm, exclusive mm-hmm. and so extractive yeah. versus well, this open, promiscuous might be the wrong word. Because I was taken mm-hmm. aback by our last interview where you said, you know, uh, the spirits might call you to become uh, Catholic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's mm-hmm. fine, you know. Mm-hmm. So can you talk about the universality uh, who who has the right claim to that? <laughs> well, no, well, indigenous systems have more of a claim of universality because they're rooted in nature. The sort of thing that Albert Einstein uh, would have said, the, the, the god of nature. Uh, many individuals who are Christians, uh, many of my students and other people would say, oh my God, I believe in those things. Well, that's not Christianity. It comes from a different source altogether, even though they did not recognize it. The universal nature of religion or spirituality is there, and you find it in all systems. But some systems allow you more access than others, more ready access than others. Uh, and this is where, uh, indeed, 
you see that Native Americans and Africans and Asians have many things in common, which you do not find in the three religions that come out of the Middle East because of their own nature, because of their own traditions, because of their own history as being very patriarchal, for instance. Now, it seems to me, for instance, that if I'm going to think and conceptualize God in my own mind, I would see it as a woman. Women give birth, men don't. But in terms of the Abra, Abra I can't pronounce that word, uh, the, the religions that descend from Abraham, that's very patriarchal, and God is always a he. And somehow that does not compute in my own mind and never did, even as a child. Um, you know, uh, we have generalized, uh, of course, religions in that sense. And it seems to me that um, if we're not going to call it it, we should call it a she. Uh, mm-hmm. Even though God has no gender and God has no sex because God is pure spirit. The human soul has no gender and no sex. The human soul, each individual soul, is an it, I suppose. It is mm-hmm. pure spirit. It is not male nor female. Uh, but somehow we have gender as a whole thing, and that leads to patriarchy. And I mm-hmm. don't like that. And to the binary system. I don't like that either. So that that sort of makes the Zora Neale Hurston quote I mentioned earlier even more uh, poignant. Mm-hmm. Gods always behave like people who make them. Exactly. And by the way, Zora Neale Hurston was a voodoo initiate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. She was. And uh-huh. an anthropologist. Another mm-hmm. anthropologist, Maya Deren, was a white woman from Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Was also a Haitian mumbo. And one of my mother's cousins uh, was the equivalent of Minister of Tourism in Haiti in the 1940s. And he told me before he died, he drove Maya Deren on the first visit to Haiti to her first voodoo ceremony. And that white woman, who only spoke English, did not speak Ukrainian because she came here as a child in the U.S., went into transfer Haitian, three different Haitian what that same night. She went into a, a, a religious trance, which is mm-hmm. kind of interesting. And mm-hmm. she's a very powerful woman, and one of the best books ever written about Haitian voodoo is Maya Deren's book, um, uh, The Living Gods of Haiti. Yeah, I have that. Uh, would you would you be comfortable enough to, because you mentioned it quite a bit of time, for us to just talk about that book as a session? Well, yeah, I, we, we, I, we could. I would have to reread it again. <laughs> <laughs> Are you because, okay with that? I mean, uh, well, we, I we, we may want to think about that because I would have yeah. to reread it again. Another, <laughs> there are two other books I like. I like Maya Deren's book. It's approachable and very deep, and she understood Vodou perfectly well as a woman born in Ukraine, raised in the United States, an anthropologist, a, da- a dancer, and a filmmaker, avant-garde filmmaker. Another yeah. book is Reginald Crosley, who is a Haitian scientist in the medical field and a Protestant, wrote uh, a book whose name escapes me at this very moment. Uh, and I will have to send you the name of that book uh, after uh, we hang up. And there's another book by Mimouz Beaubois, Not mm-hmm. Me. It's been translated into English. It's in French, it's into English. And these are the three favorite books of mine on Haitian voodoo. Mm-hmm. Better than mine. Oh, wow. <laughs> Better than mine. Okay. 
Okay, I'll check, I'll check them out. I, uh, I, I recently bought Jean Anglade L'Audience, and uh, it's, it's, it's interesting how L'Audience is part of our culture. Um, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I yeah. knew Georges Anglade. I knew Georges Anglade. Uh, in fact, um, 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 if the Haitian version, of the Haitian, the French version of my first book, In the Shadow of Powers, ever comes out, um, uh, it's been dedicated to Georges Anglade and his wife, Mireille Neptune, uh, mm-hmm. a very powerful Haitian feminist. They both died during the Goudou Goudou in 2010 mm-hmm. in Haiti. Wow. Uh, and uh, Georges Anglade, I highly respect it. He was the best geographer we had up to that point. And mm-hmm. he was a wonderful, wonderful individual. So was his wife, Mireille Neptune. Uh, yeah, excellent book, uh, very powerful yeah. mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is the gift of Haiti to the world, some very, very powerful yeah. minds. You know, <laughs> Louis-Joseph yeah. Janvier, Antenor Firmin, Dantes Bergard, jean Bright Smouth, uh, and you go on from there, Demesval Delon, yeah. uh, <laughs> very powerful individuals, and Haitian philosophy needs to be studied by all Haitians. You you know I've been telling some friends that uh, you know the series I'm doing with you that uh, one of my dream interviews every 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 session I have with you is a dream come true by the way Patrick <laughs> mm. uh, but is for you and Claudine together to talk about your histories together. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh huh. What do you think? Yeah. Well, she's an interesting person. She is. Uh um, uh, well, she calls herself my twin, and uh, and she that title was given to us by her mother, Paulette Pujolot-Yol, who was a wonderful, wonderful novelist in Haiti mm-hmm. and president of the League Feminine d'Action Sociale, uh, the earliest Haitian feminist organization, whom I had met on several occasions. And so that title was given to us by uh, her mother uh, herself. Which what title was that? What? What title? I missed it. Uh, 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 twin. She oh. saw us. She saw Claudine and I as twins. Oh, twins. Okay, Marasa. Okay. Yeah, Marasa, Marasa. <laughs> and by the way, it's interesting because look, in Haiti, in Vodou, one plus one equals three. Right. It's the 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 the, the total is more powerful than some than, than uh, is more powerful than. What what is the expression? I had it earlier, and I I sort of forget. One plus one equals three. Is mm-hmm. that the, the the it's like the 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 child born after the marasa is more yes. powerful than the two marasa combined, mm-hmm. and so it's greater than the sum of its parts. Mm-hmm. Greater than the sum and, of its parts. And, and it stops at the three, right? So it doesn't mean four one is more no, powerful no, than three. the three. But it you see, three, three is a powerful uh, is a powerful uh, um, uh, what do you call it? Um, number in pretty much all religious systems, all of them. Mm-hmm. The Holy Trinity. Three comes up again and again. When you do bad things in Vodou, there, there is the belief in karma, what uh, Buddhists and Hindus would talk about karma. It comes back at you by a factor of three. It's going to hit you. It's the, the, the uh, uh, the shock our tour. In the very same way, if you do the good things, it's going to come back to you by a factor of three. Mm-hmm. Three times as powerful. So when you do bad things in the world, 
to other people, it will come. It will hit you twice as hard, three times as hard, three mm-hmm. times as hard. And so the idea yeah. is to do good for the rest of your life, and mm-hmm. to know yourself, not to indulge into negative thoughts, negative actions, because negative thoughts are as powerful as negative actions. Mm-hmm. Even mm-hmm. the thoughts that you have have an impact not only on your life, but those around you, and by extension, the cosmos itself. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah. if you get a chance to get the book by Mimrose Beaubois, mm-hmm. uh, I, I suggest that you do so. It's, it's, it's a wonderful book. Okay. Definitely. Merci, yeah. I believe I'll be good stuff. Okay. So we'll, we'll, talk, we'll talk again soon. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Please follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Negmawa Podcast. That's Mawa with a W, not an R. <laughs>